You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everyone. Before we get started today, we wanted to let you know about our September class. It's called The S-Word, taught by Dr. Matthew Crosman. It's a one-night class, and Matthew will explore Paul's use of sin. That's the S-word, I guess by that's the, the S-word, right? It could have been anything. I figure it out. could have been a out. lot of things. But he's going to explore Paul's uses of sin language in Romans 5 through 8, and how we might see the effects of sin at play in our world today. And when you sign up for the class, you get the live class, a live Q&A session, downloadable class slides, and a link to the class recording in case you can't make it live and or, you know, you want to watch it at another time. And it's taking place on September 27th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern time. Right. Now it's pay what you can, right? Until the class ends. This is always the case, folks. And then it costs $25 to download, but you can get all of our classes if you want to do this, and I highly recommend it, for just $12 a month by becoming a member of the Society of Normal People. And for more info and to sign up, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash sin. On today's episode, we're talking about the other Gospels with John Dominic Crossan, who, by the way, goes by Dom, as you will hear. What a surreal moment for me to call John Dominic Crossan and call him Dom the whole time, because my upbringing... There were certain people who embodied the liberal, sort of like the Pied Piper away from actual Christianity. Uh, I mean, Pete Enns, who else? Pete, no, this is, but now- <laughs> This is before. This is before, no one knew <laughs> who you were back then. <laughs> we're not talking about you, we're talking no. about Dom. This you is know, Dom, though. But there were two people that you, you had to steer clear of because, frankly, on this side of things, it's because- I think scholars were intimidated, you know, the, the scholars I would have grown up with in more conservative situations would have been threatened by Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. Mm-hmm. And and then to go through this faith transition and just see uh, how much of a powerhouse scholar Dom is, has been, it's just one of those full circle moments to right. say, what, what am I doing? I'm sitting here on a podcast talking to this uh, There person. are always disagreements, but the thing is that he's... A, a premier historical Jesus scholar in the world and has been for a long time, like him or love him, but he's an important voice. And usually this is when we go through the books that our guests have written, and there are literally too many to name. Yeah. So just just Google him if you don't know who he is. Yeah. And you can find out he was a monk, which he said too, for 19 years. Yeah. That's interesting. You can write life. a lot of books, I guess, if you're a guess monk so. for 19 years. Yeah. And not having sex. Yeah. That's true. Right. Get right. a lot done. <laughs> Got a lot of energy that's got to go somewhere. somewhere. (laughs) All right. Let's get get into this enlightening episode. I think we just ruined the whole thing. Anyway, yeah, folks, enjoy this episode. It was so much fun having John Dominic Crossan with us. You have a tradition of interpretation and counterinterpretation. So good news, news is a fact, but good is an interpretation. Then you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel according to And that's forcing you again and again to interpret. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for now? If you're not doing that, then we ain't gospeling. We're just talking. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, With Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. 
tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, Tom, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you. And a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. It's been a long time coming. So let's jump right in with this question of this idea of extra canonical or non-canonical gospels might be a new idea for some folks. So what are the texts that are considered to be non-canonical and what what do we mean by that when we say non-canonical? Well, on the one hand, you could say anything that claims to be a gospel and that isn't in the New Testament with the four that are in there is a non-canonical gospel. But that's too big. That's not really what we mean. What we're talking about is texts, basically probably from the very first and second century, at least claiming to be from the first and second century, which are claimed to be gospels. They are maybe gospel in the title. And the big question is this, do they have materials in there that gives us information or even insight into say the historical Jesus that we don't get from the four canonical gospels? That's really what's at issue. Otherwise, I don't think anyone would care too much. Do they have new stuff in there? Or do they have stuff that is older than what we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, contrary to them, dependent on them or independent of them? So these are the real questions that are coded behind the word, the non-canonical gospels. Well, maybe a little bit more context, if you can, on, you know, we've had our Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in our Bibles for a long time. When were these extra canonical Gospels discovered? Have we known about them for a very long time? Like, what's the historical data? Two ways. Sometimes we've known about, say, the Gospel of Peter, the quote one, because some early father, we didn't hear too much from early mothers, to be honest with you, some early father mentioned it. That's my, that might be all we know. There is something called the gospel of X, whoever that is, and we don't have it. The other real thing is this. It's not that Egyptian Christians were particularly Christian over anyone else, but their sands are very, very dry. So if a papyrus, even a papyrus manuscript, got into the sands of Egypt, either because it was buried for safekeeping, maybe in a steel jar, or even was just simply abandoned as rubbish paper and managed to get buried in the sand, the odds are it would last for 2,000 years and until the day when it was dug up would not start disintegrating. So a huge trove of the non-canonical gospels and indeed of the canonical gospels comes from Egypt. 
because it's so dry. Okay, so we have these non-canonical gospels, and and you said there's so many of them, but are there certain core examples that everybody talks about and that you know normal people might want to know about? All right, let me talk about types rather than just numbers of them. Okay. I talk, and we all talk about the gospels, plural, the four gospels, the non-canonical gospels. Let me say that most of the people in the New Testament would be screaming to hear that plural. They would insist that there is only one gospel, euangelion, in the singular in Greek. It is Jesus the Christ. Now, you can have the gospel according to Matthew, according to Paul, but you have only one gospel. So it's kind of a a shorthand when you and I say, and I do say, of course, the gospels. If you wanted to be technical, you'd have to call them gospel versions. They, They are interpretations by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Paul, of the one gospel. Paul would scream to hear the plural. He he would say, there is only one gospel. There's only one gospel. Yeah, but that's the gospel according to. Anyway, granted that. Here's really what's at issue. Let me get it up front. The four that we have, I'm leaving Paul aside for the moment. The four that we have are what I'm going to call narrative gospels. For for normal people, that means if you took Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John to a producer in Hollywood, they could imagine making a story out of them because they are a story. They have a kind of a beginning with John the Baptist. Maybe there's a birth story in Matthew and Luke, or John and Mark don't have that, but at least they start with John the Baptist. Okay, we get that. Then Jesus is in Galilee for a while. Then he goes to Jerusalem, crucifixion, resurrection. It's a story. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Aristotle would be quite happy with it. So that's a type. It's called a narrative gospel, I'm calling it that. What is of importance for everyone to understand is a type was canonized by giving you those four examples, and certain other types were (laughs) kept out of there, other options. It's not that these were the only type that was available from the very beginning. There were two other major types that were, let me say, not accepted, are quietly dismissed, are declared heretical. And it's important that you know these two types, whether you like them or not, they're relevant, to understand that the type that was chosen was just one option. Yeah, so what are those other types? All right. The the first, and I think we say the most important one, I'm going to put my name on it, is what I'm going to call a sayings gospel, S-A-Y-I-N-G-S. Jesus is imagined. These are not just, you know, memories. Oh, he said this. Oh, yeah, I remember that good one. Yeah, that was a really good one about blessed are the poor. Yeah, I remember that one. (laughs) It is divine wisdom speaking on earth. So we want the sayings of divine wisdom. It's an obvious type. What Jesus said is so precious. He's not just, you know, a saint or even a martyr. He's speaking the word of God. So we should keep his sayings and remember them. And of course, live by them. You're not keeping them as an exercise in memory, but an exercise in imitation. Would it be fair to refer to, is is Jesus sort of more sage-like in these sayings, Gospels? I hesitate to say that because I, I once used it and then I got kind of pilloried for it as if I would say, well, he's just another guy with an opinion. No, there's a theology behind these gospels. 
Okay. And they're not really saying, well, you know, this is what Jesus said, but, you know, other guys said different stuff. There's lots of sages around. There's lots of prophets around. They're talking about Jesus as divine wisdom communicating. It's like, it's like a great divine, shut up and listen. <laughs> you know, this is divine wisdom speaking. It's not just a kind of a good opinion or something else. So there's transcendental claims being made by these sayings. And it would be false to simply say, well, you know, we have the sayings of Chairman Mao and we've lots of collections of wisdom sayings and proverbs. There's a theological transcendental framework. Okay. So these sayings, gospels, and we can get into examples of you know what constitute this type, but are these devoid of any narrative content at all? Or, or do they presume the narrative of the other gospels? Do they, does Jesus talk about his resurrection or something like that, or his, his crucifixion? Or is it really just a lot of divine wisdom, a lot of sayings, page after page after page? And now we're getting very close to the crux of why these are never going to be accepted. They're really not narratives. If I go back to my example, take a collection, say the Gospel of Thomas, take it to a producer in Hollywood, say, please make me a story. He'll say, go away. There's no story here. I can't just put a camera in front of a, a talking head, as it were, even if it's a divine head, everyone's going to be bored. So I think that's the major issue. There may be a mini book, somebody says to Jesus, Jesus says. You may have a, a conversation that one part, two part conversation. Jesus may tell a parable, for example. So that would certainly be kind of a, a mini story, but it's a story by Jesus, not a story about Jesus. So a decision was made and made very, very early that no, this is not what we want. We have this. We have, as it were, let me call them collections of the sayings of Jesus, but we want them in a narrative framework. And if necessary, we'll create the narrative. <laughs> All right. So before we flesh out a little bit more the sayings, gospels, and maybe give an example or two, could you just give us, you said there was another type, I think, in addition to the sayings, gospels, and the narrative gospels? Yes. And this other type, in a way, is what you might say inquiring minds would want to know. <laughs> For example, in, in the gospel according to Luke, you have Jesus, at least between Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, you have Jesus back for 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. Okay, people might say, well, gee, I really would like to hear from Jesus during those 40 days. Don't tell me he talked about the kingdom of God. I know that. He's been doing that for X number of years. Now, he's back, as it were, the resurrected Jesus. I want to hear about that. Don't tell me about his life and all these little parables he, he told. I'm not interested in that. I'd love to hear what went on in those 40 years. So another type of gospel begins where ours end. It starts, as it were, with the resurrection. I, I'm making this up a little bit. When Jesus came out of the tomb, he said, and then you have not so much sayings, but a long discourse or possibly a conversation. Let me say, Jesus came out of the tomb and Peter said to him, what is heaven like? Or Mary said to him, tell us more about heaven. In other words, it's kind of obvious when you think of it, you know, wouldn't people love to know not just what Jesus said when he walked around in sandals, but when he came back in robes of glory. So I'm going to call these revelation gospels. It's not a great term because everything is a revelation in one sense, but it's you could call them post-resurrection gospels. Instead of ending with the resurrection, they begin with the resurrection. So I call them, just for at least 
for convenience, Revelation Gospels, and you know what I mean by that. That's that's the other third type, major type at least. That's not organized by sayings? If it's not presented in a narrative way, how do these Revelation Gospels present their material? Much more like what I call a conversation or a dialogue or a question and answer in which key disciples, it could be Mary, it could be Peter, it could be Peter, James, and John, it could be the 12, sort of as a chorus to say the 12 asked him as if they're all speaking at the same time. So I would say if you think of sayings in the one hand, narrative in the other, these are like dialogue. They're a little bit like, you might say, platonic dialogues, the way the philosophy of Plato comes across. Somebody asks a question, somebody answers, asks a question, answered. They could be called, and maybe that might be a safer term, dialogue gospels. Dialogue, yeah, okay. Maybe just because I think some people might have heard, before we dive into these, can you just give a couple of examples of each of each one of those that people might have heard of? Well, the Gospel of Thomas is probably the most famous, extra-canonical, highly controversial, and rightly so. It's terribly important one way or the other. And it's it's the sayings. That I'm, I have it right here, and I... I'll read it to you. Here's how it opens. What, you're going to read the whole thing to us? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> there goes the how many hours will that take? Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, just the opening. Okay. <laughs> These are the secret words which the living Jesus spoke and which, now the author, Didymus Judas Thomas, his name is really Judas, and Didymus and Thomas is a nickname, the twin, Judas the twin, wrote down. So, the secret words which the living Jesus spoke and which Judas Thomas wrote down. All right, that's one way. Then you have sayings and your parables of Jesus and you have they said, he says. And so it goes on and you can number them however you want. And at the end of it, it says, it does say in the manuscript, the gospel according to Thomas. That's one example. It's an extra canonical, non-canonical gospel discovered at a place called Nag Hammadi, a little bit north of Luxor, the Valley of the Kings. Most people would know about that in Egypt. And again, came out of a seal jar, which started decomposing the, mo- the moment the seal was broken, of course. So that would be one example from 1945 of a gospel, the gospel according to Thomas, and it's the sayings gospel. Another example, let me read you again. This would be the other type. It's called the Apocryphon, or the Apocalypse, if you want, the Secret Gospel. This one is of James. Here's the key verse again at the opening. Now, while the 12 disciples were sitting together, recalling what Jesus said, whether in secret or openly, and putting it in books, (laughs) you can see we're already into writing, the Savior appeared, so it's right post-resurrection, after he'd been gone from so long, and then they start the conversation. They said, he said. So the clues are sayings, narrative, dialogue. And the two other types, as it were, besides narrative, were, let me use a blunt term for the moment, censored out. So it's terribly important to, you know, for people to know that it was a narrative type that was canonized. And one example, two examples, three examples, four examples that didn't worry as long as it was a narrative. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants 
and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. I think to get more of a feel for this, Dom, do, I mean, not to put you on the spot, I mean, can you read a passage from somewhere in the Gospel of Thomas that has proved to be particularly controversial? Okay. I choose this one because it starts with something that you say, oh yeah, we know this stuff from the New Testament. Well, this is the same old stuff. I, I, let me read you two. Here's one. Here's a, here's a controversial one. Jesus said, now most of them will start with Jesus said. That's typical in the sayings. If those who lead you say to you, see the kingdom is in heaven, <laughs> then the birds of the heaven will get there before you. If they say to you, it is in the sea, then the fish will get there before you. But the kingdom of heaven is within you and outside of you. That's deliberately mocking the apocalyptic idea of watching for signs. You'll look up to the heavens, you'll see it coming. Look out over the sea, you'll see the kingdom coming. It's like, see, it's already here, dummy. It's already here. Open your eyes. It's inside you and it's all around you. That's why you can't see it. It's like air, as it were. So that would be highly controversial, of course, because it wipes out any apocalyptic reasoning, looking for signs of the times, calculating how much time is left before the return of Jesus, simply mocks it, you know, satirizes it. <laughs> you think the birds will get there before you then. Here's a second one. I, I just read you two from Thomas. This one starts off fine. 
It says, Jesus saw some infants who were being suckled. He said to his disciples, these infants being suckled are like those who enter the kingdom. Oh, that sounds just like, you know, unless you become as little children, you can't get into the kingdom of God. Oh, that's just a different version. But what could go wrong here? This sounds perfectly normal, but there's more, right? Yeah, that's, and this is very often what you get when you're reading through the Gospel of Thomas. You keep saying to them, hey, I heard that before, but but it doesn't sound the same. It kind of sounds different. And then something comes in and says, yeah, that's really different. But but you have a feeling that this Gospel of Thomas knows stuff. It's not just making it up, as it were. So let me say what I, I just abbreviated. They said to him, now this is, where, this is where it starts. If then we become as children, shall we enter the kingdom? Then you get this. When you make the two one, and when you make the inside as the outside, the outside is the inside, the upper is the lower. And when you make the male and the female into a single one, so that the male is not male and the female is not female, then you will enter the kingdom. Okay. <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, we moved into a different world. We started off with children. Okay, that should be either innocent or 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 whatever is the model. But what does it mean when you make the male and the female one? Now we're deep into the theology. <laughs> In other words, the transcendental core of the Gospel of Thomas. It ain't just about, oh yeah, we remember all the stuff he said. For Thomas, where the world went wrong was in the Garden of Eden. But it went wrong when the one became two. When there was the earthling there alone before, it was it was split into male and female. So this is an ascetic, ascetic vision of life. We have to give up sex. We have to give up sex because this is the ideal, for men and for women, by the way, of an ascetic life that is asexual. That's where we went wrong, not the original sin or something else. It's original split, as it were. So this is a, a manifest of the Gospel of Thomas for a certain way of life, backed by a theology. Just to make sure, because I'm trying to get all of the vocabulary here that people might have heard in here. People might have heard the term Gnostic Gospels, because I think that was popular when, you know, on the news and everything, they were talking about the Gospel of Thomas and others. There was also Gnostic Gospels. Are those the same of what we're talking about here, or are they different? No, we're talking about a much wider set. You could say the Gnostic Gospels are inside the non-canonical Gospels, if you will. But I would not think that Thomas, and we have to get back to this, is Gnostic. Thomas is ascetic. So that's another way to slice these into different categories or types, ascetic, Gnostic, and maybe some other categories. So what would be a Gnostic gospel and how does that similar or different than, say, the Gospel of Thomas? All right. Now, what is at stake in all of this is what I'm going to call a deep disenchantment with the Roman world. And not with the Roman world because it's Roman, but because the Roman world is one more example of quotation marks, this world, which has been alienated from God. So we're trying to imagine some way of expressing how to live in this world while you're alienated from its normalcy, to put it bluntly. Now, that's going on, as you know, of course, in the canonical Gospels. We don't do this, we don't do that. Paul says <laughs> we, we don't do slavery or something like that. So also, how do you explain 
that the world of creation is not the world of civilization, to use my language a little bit. I mean, if God created the world and God is good and just, then how come it's in the mess? It is. The apocalyptic answer is, don't worry, it's just going to be destroyed pretty soon. Just hang in there. Friday is coming, as it were. Well, Thomas doesn't have that, as as we saw. He doesn't have the apocalyptic exit strategy, as it were. So he's trying to figure, how do you live in this world, but not live in this world? And his answer is asceticism. You kind of withdraw from the world as maybe they did at Qumran, the Essenes at Qumran, and the monks have always done, say, in, in, in Hinduism or other religions. It's a statement of withdrawal from a world that you will not accept as normal. That's the issue that's, that's here. How deep is the withdrawal? How total? How partial? How do you do it? And how do you display openly your alienation from the world? So the Gospel of Thomas is like a vision for how to live. And the narrative Gospels that we have in Scripture are, there's a little bit of that, isn't there? But the focus is elsewhere. I think it is. I think there's much more a struggle with the world in the narrative Gospels, because the very fact of a narrative, if you've given up on the world, for example, apocalyptically, there's no point in making a narrative. That's why Jesus could not have been really an apocalypticist, because apocalypticists don't tell good parables. (laughs) They don't care about watching carefully enough to tell a good story about how the world is. They'll tell you a good story about how it's going up in flames and scare the living daylights out of you, maybe. But that means, you know, why would you bother describing something? Why would you bother describing sewing or something like that? So what you're trying to do, say, with asceticism, is publicly witness withdrawal from what everyone takes as absolutely normal, that you eat and drink and that you uh, marry, sex, have sex, have children. All of the normalcy of the world, you withdraw from it. And, of course, withdrawal from marriage, sex, having children, and the world, if everyone decided that was the, the way to go, we'd have our own little apocalypse pretty fast. But it is, it is a statement, a witness against the world. I mean, that's what's at stake. And what you're asking is, how profound is the witness? Should we all withdraw into the forest, maybe? Withdraw into the mountains, into the bogs, into somewhere and leave the world to do what it wants to do? Or should we try to live in it and witness against it, which is, I think, the choice that is made, has been made, of course, by Judaism. That's where it came straight from Judaism into the New Testament. And in one sense, these Gospels are sort of anti-Jewish. The Gnostic Gospels, I think I would describe as anti-Jewish because they do not accept the Jewish vision of staying in the world but struggling against it. Okay. All right, so just, again, to sort of get the big picture here for all of us, the Gospel of Thomas, would it be fair to say this, the Gospel of Thomas is a particular, you said interpretation, right? It's an interpretation of the Jesus event for a particular community, perhaps, that were interested in certain kinds of things that, that, again, I'm, I'm I'm trying to get at whether there is a presumption of the existence of these narrative gospels when the author of the Gospel of Thomas did his thing. 
Is he saying that's not good enough? Let let's we have to do something different, or are they just on a very different path altogether and not even concerned about some of that stuff? I can see in the Gospel of Thomas definitely, and we I read it to you. It's anti-apocalyptic vision, so it certainly knows a an apocalyptic type of. Christianity, it certainly knows it. It mocks it, it laughs at it, it jeers at it. So it has to know that. Does it know the canonical four? I, I don't think so. I really don't. But I think it knows sayings of Jesus that are apocalyptically oriented. Yes, I think it knows alternative sayings of Jesus. Let me take an example. This is much <laughs> trickier. There is something which I'm going to call the gospel according to Q. I don't know if people, normal people would have heard what's called the Q gospel. I have to explain it because it is a sayings gospel. There's a consensus of scholarship that Matthew and Luke use as their primary source, the gospel of Mark. That's a consensus of scholarship. I agree with it. In fact, I always consider consensus and scholarship a sort of a miracle because usually we can never agree with one another. But at least I accept that. And once you accept that, you notice that also in Matthew and Luke, there's a large amount of consecutive material, which is not in Mark. If you have them in parallel columns, you can see it easily. But they're the same in Matthew and Luke. That was first discovered by German scholars, and they called it simply the source. Speaking German, they called it die Quelle, Q-U-E-L-L-E, which is German word for a source, the other source besides Mark. So we call it Q. It's a sayings gospel. So now, wait a minute. Now we're really getting confused. We got a sayings gospel like a Trojan horse inside the New Testament. It got in there because Matthew and Luke decided to incorporate it along with Mark. See where we're going. They wouldn't accept it straight, but they fitted it into the gospel of Mark. So you have Mark and they took Q and the sayings and they fitted it in, in the framework of Mark. So it's inside the New Testament. Now, what's fascinating about it is it's apocalyptic sayings of Jesus. So I can't prove this, but if I were to imagine what Thomas has read and doesn't like and is mocking, it would come awfully close to the gospel according to Q the apocalyptic sayings of Jesus. It's just fascinating, you know, that you have in history these diverse interpretations. Even the four canonical gospels, there's diversity there too, but there were these other communities on the outside that, I shouldn't say on the outside, there were other communities that wrote differently about Jesus. And as we were, we've been saying all along, some were accepted, four of them, some were not. So, Maybe can we get into that a little bit, like to talk a little bit more about why these texts were rejected as heretical, who had the authority to do that, and what's the deal with this? You know, I mean, what, what was there politics involved? What's what? Why are these gospels just on the outside looking in for really the entire history of the church until they were rediscovered? Oh yeah, there's politics, yeah. <laughs> And sometimes we have to make our own judgment on it. I mean, there's there's type of gospels I wouldn't want around, quite frankly. Here, here's what's actually going on. Suppose, let's do a counterfactual. Supposing around the year 100, the Roman Empire had said, we have enough of this stuff. Now, we crucified their leader. 
Now we got these guys still around 50 years later. Let's really try a little genocide here. If you're a Christian, you get put to death, period, around the year 100. Supposing they went that way, instead of barely really tolerating Christianity until at least 250 before you first had the imperial-wide persecution, then it was too late, of course. It was too many. And the only thing left was for Constantine to give in. But supposing they had really decided to go against it, as they went against the Celts, for example, and said, okay, this religion is against us, so it's forbidden. Supposing they had done that to Christianity, as soon as they began to understand it was separate from Judaism. And Nero had figured that out, by the way, of course, after the great fire. These Christians somewhere are kind of Jews, but not really Jews. So I can punish Christians and I won't touch Jews. Supposing he had done that. I think the type of gospels that probably would have become normative if we survived as Christians would have been much closer to the nasty gospels that simply said this whole rotten world is going straight to hell, as it were. And we're not sorry. I think the narrative gospels would never have got an audience. So I I think we have to understand the context that made it possible to say, okay, we can work. We, being Christianity, we can work with this world. We don't like a lot of it. We really don't. And we're we're going to be in some tensive dialectic with it. But yeah, we can live in it. We're not going to withdraw from it and sort of consign the whole thing to the rubbish heap of history, to put it kindly and mildly. We have to think of that. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning. residential online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. 
Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Now, in what happened, because quite frankly, the Roman Empire on the imperial level, not talking about small local nastinesses or when they picked off leaders who were causing tumults or stirring up the people, as the Romans said, we can work with the Roman Empire. That's the decision that made the narrative gospels our story. Okay, you guys have your story, the foundation of the Roman Empire and all the rest of it. We have our story. We can negotiate our story with your story. But yeah, we're going to live in this world because the world is a world of story. We're not giving up on it either apocalyptically or gnostically by saying it's just too evil to have anything to do with. So in summary, I'm trying to make sure I'm I'm capturing what you're saying, that in some ways it was a way to live more peaceably or maybe not so outright contrary to the Roman imperialism to have these narrative gospels. If they were apocalyptic or the Gnostic gospels, it would have been much more stark. It would have been more maybe like the book of Revelation, which is picking on the Roman Empire pretty explicitly, these narrative gospels may tone that down a little bit, made it a little bit more. Why don't we try to get along in this society rather than being outside of it and pointing to it as antithetical? I I think that's really what's going on. You mentioned the book of Revelation. That is really going as strong as it can against those, (laughs) the seven churches and those in the seven churches who are in effect saying, yeah, can't we just get on with the Roman Empire? Why can't I do business with the Roman Empire? Why can't I be a good Christian and a Roman trader, T-R-A-D-E-R? You'll notice, for example, in the book of Revelation, you never mention the legions, but you hear a lot about the traders, (laughs) the Roman traders. The big threat is trade for luring you into the Roman Empire, into its globalization. So, Yes, it's part of the profound politics. I don't mean in the superficial level politics that's going on. How do we live in a world that to one degree or another, on the one hand, God so loved, according to John, God so loved the world. But again and again, in the New Testament, you find statements that there's nothing in this world but. (laughs) So how is this world, quotation marks, contrary to the world, as it were. That's what's going on. We have this built-in diversity, even with the New Testament, this conversation happening within the New Testament itself on what's our relationship to the world, particularly to the Roman Empire. And it's, it's interesting to even see, to go back to what you said earlier, this idea of Q being a sayings gospel, which again, just to summarize, because this may be a new concept for others, that scholars are very aware that Matthew and Luke use Mark as their primary source. But then you can also see Matthew and Luke using this other thing because they have a lot of similarities that aren't in Mark, and that's this cue. 
and it's a sayings gospel. So even baked into a narrative gospel that is trying to tone it down, you have this sayings gospel that's really trying to turn it up. And those get melded together in this tradition that eventuates into the four gospels we have now in our New Testament. That's fascinating, honestly, for me, because as I said, it's like the Trojan horse. There's already one got in there and we can we can see it, but it's it's encapsulated. Now, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke on the one hand, and then John on the other, and we don't have a consensus here among scholars whether John is dependent on Matthew, Mark, and Luke, may have its own tradition as well, or is completely independent. I'm inclined to think it's also dependent in many ways, because what, for example, if you read John chapter six, John's not interested in the multiplication of loaves and fishes. He wants to get on with Jesus as the bread of life. Let's dump the fish. He's not going to be the fish of life. John can't move fast enough to get rid of the fish and have a long discourse on the bread of life. And it's magnificent, but the fish get lost somewhere, somehow in it. So even within the Gospels themselves, you have a tradition of interpretation and counterinterpretation. Let me insist on that for a second. The word gospel, as you know, is a singular word in Greek, euangelion. We have trouble with news because news is a singular plural word. I don't know which it is. You say the news is good. You don't say the news are good. But So good news, news is a fact. It's supposed to be a fact at least, but good is an interpretation. So a gospel is openly, honestly, clearly an interpretation. The news is Jesus proclaimed as the Messiah and Son of God. That's news. Yep. Now, is it good news or what? Well, it's good news for some people. It's not good news for the Romans. It's not good news for some of the Jewish people. So good news is an interpretation, which means you can't be a Christian without commitment. Otherwise, you simply say, well, it's news. Then you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel according to. They would never say the gospel of Matthew. I I say that all the time for shorthand, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John. It's the gospel according to. And that's forcing you again and again to interpret. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for now? If you're not doing that, then we ain't gospeling. We're just talking. Well, Dom, you know, we're anticipating the end of this wonderful discussion with you. And I'd, I'd like to get to something that I think would be of great value for our listeners. And and I think for me and, and Jared as well, just to, to think about these things more deeply. But talk about the value of these extra-canonical Gospels, these non-canonical Gospels, both for, for scholarship, like what value do they have in, in scholarship, but also maybe to tie that into what value these texts might have just for average readers of the Bible who are either Christian or interested in Christianity? Well, to be very honest with you, I've known individuals whose whole Christian life is absorbed by one or another of these. As as for you, it might be, say, for Mark, or for, for me, it might be for John, that they find the Gospel of Thomas is ecstatically marvelous. I don't, to be honest with you, I spent 19 years as a monk, and I have complete respect and understanding for the the vision of the monastery. It's just not what I want to do. But I understand a given one might be a breakthrough for somebody else. But they couldn't see Christ 
robed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John because maybe it's become too stale or too common or what, whatever. But I think apart from that, for me, the more important thing is the face that we really, in the New Testament, we chose narrative. We chose a story. And we all know <laughs> that what a story is supposed to do is draw you into it. <laughs> Now, it, it, it may be a problem if, if it gets so stale that you, you you don't. But by choosing a story, you should be drawn into it. In other words, you should not be able to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John without getting involved. Even if it's involved to say, I don't like this. I, you're supposed to get involved. So for me, looking at these other two types and then realizing that we canonized in Christianity. And when I say we, I mean... If I'm using the New Testament as a Christian, I accept that this was the decision, and I'm willing to discuss whether I think today it was a good decision or not. As a scholar, if I was studying the history of Christianity, of course, I'd have to know all of this equally well. But if I'm talking now, actually, in the same way as I would, I might say to you that I don't like this violence in the book of Revelation, I'm quite willing to make a judgment as a Christian, also as a human being. I'm quite willing to make a judgment about, in, say, Ephesians and Colossians, taken for granted you have slaves would be kind to them. Okay, I don't know how not to make a judgment unless I just don't care. So I'm forced to think about what's the great value of making these a story about Jesus, not the sayings of Jesus or, or the revelations of Jesus, but that Jesus is walking around in sandals, <laughs> saying things, yes, doing things, people reacting to them. I I think if you lost that, you'd lose, I think, the heart of Christianity and its continuity with Judaism, quite frankly. The danger would be Jesus would kind of ascend into heaven and disappear and there'd be no footprints left on the earth. And we would be something else. I'm not saying we'd be evil people, but I'm not certain we would be, as I, what I understand, to be Christianity. Really appreciate that perspective that even the structure of what's made into our Bibles has an impact in very practical ways that the narrative structure itself uh, invites or, or indicates this more embodied in the world theological perspective that has this continuity with Judaism. I really appreciate that. That's a perspective I hadn't hadn't really considered before or thought of before. So thank you so much for coming on. And I have more questions than I do answers, which for me is always a great sign of a good episode. It's what we do here. Right? <laughs> That's right. <Yeah. laughs> so thanks again. And, and maybe we'll have to have you back on again just to keep this conversation going. I'm sure there's a lot more we could explore. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jared. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. In addition, you can let us know what you thought about the episode by emailing us at info at thebiblefornormalpeople.com. You've just made it through another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch our other show, Faith for Normal People, in the same feed wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by The Bible for Normal People team. Brittany Prescott, Stephen Henning, Wesley Duckworth, Savannah Locke, Tessa Stoltz, Danny Wong, 
Natalie Wyant, Jessica Shaw, and Lauren O'Connell. 